Well, this morning, we are going to continue our series in the book, uh, the first four chapters of the book of John that focuses on Jesus' impact on the world. And today, we're going to pick up in the verse uh, 22 of chapter 3. You follow along with your, in your Bibles. We'll have the slides up here. If you don't have a Bible, you're welcome to take one. The seat back below in front of you. Just go about the middle and go right. You hear Matthew, Mark, Luke, and you'll hit John. Now, what's going to happen today is the disciples of John the Baptist, which we talked about a few weeks ago, they are going to bring a concern that they have about Jesus and his disciples to John the Baptist. And how John responds to this concern is going to teach us a lot about what a Christian's role is when it comes to helping the world see Jesus. And so if you sit here today as a Christian, it is my prayer that you will have a new, fresh revelation of your role in the kingdom of God. If you are sitting here today and you're not a Christian, you're still trying to figure out who God is, what it means to follow him, that you will get a greater understanding of what a Christian should look like. Because many times I come across people and they're like, I meet these Christians and they're just, nah, they're mean, they're ugly, they're nah, people I don't want anything to do with it. But not every person that you meet that calls themselves a Christian is really a Christian. And so I pray that you will see today what one is supposed to be, and that will take you a step closer to putting your faith in Christ. Amen, church? Amen. Amen. John chapter 3, I'm going to read it for you, starting here in verse 22. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. And John was also baptized at Anon, which was a water spring, near Salem, because water was plentiful there. And people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, referring to Jesus, look, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ, but that I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. This is the word of the Lord. So in this passage, Jesus and his disciples are out doing ministry. They're baptizing people. And so are the disciples of John the Baptist. And I'm going to stop here for a minute before we get into the meat of the message because I've had people ask me in the past, wait a minute, how are people being baptized and Jesus hasn't died and rose again? Because that's the whole purpose of baptism uh, is to proclaim your faith in Jesus Christ and, and, and the illustration of you dying to your old life and being born again in Christ as we preached last week. Well, under Old Testament ceremonial law in the nation of Israel, it was necessary for them to keep themselves clean if they were to serve God, spiritually clean. 
And water all throughout the Old Testament, really all throughout the Bible, was looked as a symbol for not just physical, but spiritual cleansing. So basically, people would come to John the Baptist, they'd come to Jesus, and it was a way of repenting for their sins. And they would come over and over and over again. And if you're as sinful as I am, you would just probably buy a pool and just stay in it all the time, right? And so this is what they were doing. Not like the baptisms that we see here take place in October. But this is a good reminder again that what we see done, that what God lays out in his ceremonial laws in the Old Testament were illustrations, were teaching tools for us today. That when Christ came and died again, he is the one who makes us clean by faith in him. Now, I do want to give one small detail. It says John was baptizing at Anon near Salem because water was plentiful there. This is just another reminder that if baptism was meant to be the sprinkling of water on a head, on a baby or an adult, there would be no need for having plentiful water. It's another reminder that biblical baptism is a full immersion of going to death to your sins and coming out alive in Christ. Or as Dominic came out alive in Christ like this. Right, D? Amen, baby. And I'm encouraged in October when we see a few more people come alive in Christ. All right. Off the soapbox, back on topic. Now, somehow related to this discussion about purification, which probably had to do with baptism, the disciples of John saw or they learned that more and more people were going to the disciples of Jesus for baptism. And they come to John and they're like, John, we got a problem. People are not coming to you anymore. You're not as popular. People aren't watching your TikTok videos. The likes on Instagram are going down. They're all looking to Jesus now. They're paying attention to him. Your ministry's dying. Now, what I want to do today is I want to focus our time on John's response. Now, I want to be clear. We are not John the Baptist. He had a very unique role, and I'm not willing to go around and eat honey and wear camel clothes like he did. You'll go back and read the first chapter of John. You'll know what I mean. But I think there are principles that we can learn in serving the Lord from his response. Principles about our place in the kingdom of God. So how does John respond? He says, look, I already told you I'm not the Christ. And then he gives this wedding illustration to drive his point home. He says, the one who has the bride is the bridegroom, or as we shorten it today, the groom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. All right, what's a friend of a bridegroom? It's what we would refer to today as a best man. It'd be like a best man, but except these friends of the bridegroom, these best men, they did way more than the best men today. They didn't just like arrange like a bachelor party or any of this stuff, okay? They would actually prepare the entire wedding feast, right? They would put everything together for the celebration afterwards, Anything, you know, parents think how much money you would save if you had, like, the best man to take care of all this, especially in Jersey, right? They would send out the wedding invitations. Every bride I've ever worked with, one of the things they always hate is sending out invitations. He'd take care of all of this, right? 
And, and most importantly, what he would do is he would go, when the wedding begins, he would go to the wedding chamber where the bride was waiting, and he would escort her to the groom. And his greatest joy would be bringing the bride to the groom. John says, that's what I'm here to do. I'm a friend of the groom. I'm a friend of Jesus. I'm, I'm here to present the bride to the groom. He says this because all throughout Scripture, mostly in the New Testament, you see our relationship to God, our relationship to Christ, being compared to that of a marriage. And Jesus being the husband and us being the bride. It's an illustration of love and commitment. In fact, our marriages in our lives, read this in Ephesians, Ephesians 5, they are supposed to be an illustration and display for the world around us the commitment and love that should be between the church and Christ. And so Jesus, John's saying, look, I'm just here to introduce people to Jesus. He is the main focus, not me. He says, it would be wrong to keep the focus on me. I mean, just like at a wedding, it would be foolish for the best man to try to upstage the groom, to take his place. He's not the one who is meant for the bride. He's not the one who is committed to the bride. He's not the one whom the bride loves. John's saying, I'm not the Christ. I'm not the one meant for the people. And he goes on, to, and he says this. He says, he who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. And then he goes on to say that Jesus has all things in his hand. That Jesus gives truth to those who receive him. He gives the spirit to those who trust him. And he communicates life that is everlasting. John says, look, I'm just like one of you guys. I am from earth. I'm down here. But Jesus is from above. It's like he's saying to his disciples, you're forgetting who Jesus is. You, you need to look to him. Don't, don't look to me. And this is a good reminder for us today that no one on earth is like Christ. No one belongs in his sphere. No one should take our attention even close to the amount that Christ deserves. And, and it's important for us to say this because it is our human nature to place our focus on people. It's our human nature. You see this in the Old Testament. The Old Testament Jews, they were supposed to be a different nation than all the other nations. They were supposed to look differently, and they did this on purpose. God wanted this on purpose so that they would stand out, that they could show the rest of the world who the one God was. Well, one of the sticking points, one of the differences that came up was every other nation had a king who led them, had some guy who led them. Now, it wasn't supposed to be that way for Israel. They, they weren't supposed to have a king because they had God as their king. But that wasn't good enough for them. They're like, we need somebody on the throne. We need someone who we could see. And God said, look, this ain't going to go well for you. But they didn't care. And God finally said, all right, you reject me as your king, I'll give you one. And we know how it went for Saul as their first king. See, anytime we place our eyes on anyone other than Christ, we're missing the greatest focus. And I say that focus because we with our eyes, we all have two eyes, but we can't focus on two different things at the same time. We can only focus on one. 
So if we're ever focusing on somebody, some of you are probably trying this with your eyes right now, aren't you? I tested this theory out in my office yesterday. You can't do it. Anytime we place our focus on anyone else, it's not on Christ. Some examples to this. I know some of you, some of you grew up Catholic and you've talked to me about this. And I struggle with some, the way some Catholics, not all, I've had some who don't, how they view the Pope or they, how they view the saints or they, how they view Mary. And I'll talk to them about, man, I, my concern is you're being distracted from Christ. And they're like, no, no, not at all. If anyway, it enhances things. But when I see them talk, and when I see them pray, their focus is not on Christ. That these other symbols, these other people get more attention than Christ does. But the Pope, Mary the mother of Jesus, all the people, humans that they call saints, they're all from down here just like you and me. They all put their pants on one leg at a time. Unless they don't wear pants, but you know what I mean. I mean, one of the things I, I've constantly learned from people that have come here who grew up Catholic is I never learned what it meant to have a relationship with Jesus Christ. And that's the only relationship that matters. And I guarantee right now, if, if Mary was here, she'd be like, will you stop? Put it on Jesus. It's not about me. Now, unfortunately, us Protestants, us evangelicals, we do the same thing. Now, it may not be with the Pope, but we've seen in, in recent years the rise of, of celebrity pastors, right? You see them on TV. They're beautiful people, good-looking people. They got full heads of hair, right? You know, no, no, no discounting people who don't have hair here. It's my own thing. And we spend more time listening to them than we do reading our Bibles, I'll talk to people like, oh, I watch this person every day. And if I ask them, do you read your Bible every day? Uh, no. Or they'll be the only preacher that they listen to. They're the only piece of person that they quote on, on uh, Facebook or Instagram or whatever social media account that they have. When we listen to them, we take what they say as gospel. We're not like the Bereans who are examining their words according to Scripture. We lose sight of the fact that they come from down here just like us. We make them bigger in life, not realizing they put one pair of pants on the leg at the time like we do. I remember I was at my last church. This lady comes up to me after visiting one week. I still have emotional damage from this. And, and I, I go, thanks for visiting. She goes, oh, was, I'm glad to come one time. But she goes, I like to, I like to watch you know, at home. And she names this big uh, named preacher. He's so good. He has such great illustrations. It really hits home. It really, I really take something from him. Like, this was after I got done preaching, and I'm like, I'm like, it's all about Jesus, it's all about Jesus. And I'm like, it's like, she goes, he just has such great insight into the word of God, and, and, and these illustrations he comes up with, and I'm standing there thinking, I'm like, and I've heard this guy preach, humble dude, and he goes, look, any of you who think that I'm a great preacher, I have a team of eight people who help me write my sermon. I don't, I don't come up with all these illustrations. They sit around, and they help me do it. But, but she has elevated him. Now, some of us, we're not hyper-focused on celebrity pastors, but we get attached to our, our lead pastors or our senior pastors. If he's not preaching and we know about it, we don't come to church. It's not worth our time. As if somehow he has a special dose of the Holy Spirit that everybody got, you know, got shorted on. 
right? We put him on a pedestal. If he leaves the church, we leave the church. We're there for him. He's the only one who can give us marriage counseling or life counseling. He is the only one who can pray for us. And that's why I'm glad in this church we got people like Tim and, and, and Jobin and, and Kevin who preach that the church would never become focused about me. And not because there's anything special about me, but because of my position. I remember I was, I was down in North Carolina this week for the Junior Olympics with Claire, who was competing in discus, and we went to the mall one day, which I think she was more excited about than actually competing in, like, with the best girls in the country, um, and that and swimming in a hotel swimming pool. And we're sitting there, we're having lunch, and there's this, you know, when you have this lunch, and they have these big advertisements, and there's this big advertisement, and it said, welcome to such and such church, bishop so-and-so, and first lady so-and-so welcomes you. And they got these cold chains, and they're just smiling. I'm like, there's no Jesus on there. There's nothing. So I texted Maria. I'm like, if I started referring to you as the first lady, would you be cool with that? Can I call myself bishop? She shut that down pretty quick. And I'm like, oh, man. That's why it's always so important that we have, and that's once a reason. I'm glad for Tim and for Jobin. Listening to Jobin's message next last week where he was talking about his, his failures and stuff, that we have people who are preaching that, that keep it real, that we're all, we all have struggles. Now, some of us, we don't put our pastor on a pedestal or our leaders on a pedestal, but I've had countless conversations with people that when their pastor or someone leader does something that they disagree with or offends them, they're like, they're done. I feel like the Lord's moving me on to a different church. I feel the pressing of the, I've been prayed about it. Oh my Lord, all this nonsense. Sorry, I get annoyed. I, don't, I get so annoyed. Like, like they're surprised that a pastor or a leader would offend them, right? Or that a, a, somebody in the church would upset them or say something mean. Like this would be shocking. Somehow that they're above all of that. Once again, that's why I'm glad at this church, man, we, have a, we have a board, there's a board of seven of us. And they all have equal authority. They're all equally screwed up, by the way, some more than others. I won't tell you who. And, and, but we, we all make decisions together, and we pray together and move together. The church may never become about one person. And that we challenge each other, hold each other accountable. That the church may always be about Christ. We all have that temptation to take our eyes off Christ and to put it onto somebody else. Some of us, I, we, you know, I have, we have people in our lives, they become mentor to us. They're not even a pastor. They'll just become a mentor to us. And, and, and we lift them on, on such a high pedestal that we'll defend them at every turn, that we'll believe whatever they say. Even We can't even see it when they sin because we've lifted them so high up in our lives. There's only one who should be lifted up, and that's Jesus Christ. He's the only one from above. John goes on to say, he must increase, but I must, what do you say, decrease. In this moment, John's ministry was changing. It was going to diminish. In fact, it was going to diminish a lot. He's going to end up dead. He didn't know that at the time, I guess, but he was good with his ministry diminishing. And I was thinking, as I was reading this, I asked him himself, what gave him this selfless view of himself? And I was thinking, because he was like a pastor. They didn't have pastors at that time, but he's like a pastor in what he was doing. And, I, and I've, I've talked to friends, a couple of them, who 
you know, one went out of ministry because of his sin, another who went out of ministry just because the way life unfolded, and they struggled with their identity after that. They struggled with their worth. And so I was thinking about this, like if I was never, if those six little letters that spelled pastor in front of my name ever fell away, how would I feel about that? How would I be? How did he have such a a selfless view of himself that he was good with diminishing? I mean, how do we get to that place? And we should all want to know the answer to this because if you serve God long enough, there are going to be times where he is going to diminish you or life is going to diminish you or at least you're going to feel diminished. There's times he's going to call you out of the limelight or you allow you to be taken out of the limelight. He's going to call you to serve in a, a menial role in the church or just in your life. You're not going to receive the praise that you think you should get. You're not going to be as noticed as you're accustomed to. You're not going to be as important as you think you should be. You're not going to get the roles of influence in your life that you think you should have. It could be times in your church, in your job, in your community, where you feel like you're being decreased, that you're being eclipsed by someone else. I mean, it can be simple things. I've seen it where you have new singers come on a, 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 on a band, and, and in previous churches, thankfully, the attitude among our band is great. They'll hop off the stage for anybody else in a heartbeat, and I praise God for that. It's not easy to find, but, and, and they feel that threatened, or if you wanted to get in a church leadership position, and somebody else was chosen, you feel threatened, or even a promotion in your work. There's so many areas, little areas, where we can feel decreased and feel threatened. How do you handle that? How do we enter those times with the right attitude? Well, John tells us. He tells us right back in verse 27. He says, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it's given him from heaven. Basically, John's saying, look, the success I have and the success that Jesus has, it all comes from the same place. It comes from God. And our ability to handle decrease well in our lives is an understanding that everything that you have comes from God. Everything that you have comes from God. And this is a truth that is so easy for us to forget, especially when we, in America, where we value individual achievement and accomplishment, where we value likes on our Instagram and Facebook pages. It's so easy to go through this life and compare ourselves to other people and think, well, I worked harder and I am smarter. I figured it out. I have earned this. I have deserved this. And yes, why it's true that we can choose to do better with what we're given than someone else. At the end of the day, you did not choose what race you were born with. You did not choose what gender you were born with. You didn't choose what century you were born in. You didn't choose what country you were born in. None of that. You once again, you may have worked hard with what you were given. But the abilities, the personality, the friendships you made, the connections you were given, ultimately all come from the Lord. I mean, I could stand up here and say, get done preaching a great sermon. Multitudes of you could come up before crying out for Jesus' tears and prayers, and I'm just walking around thinking, man, I'm pretty good. But I could also stop and think, where did I get the ability to speak? Did I earn it? No. I had people teach me how to speak. 
I have a program that teaches, that helps me to study the Greek and the Hebrew, right? I have an iPad where I take notes so I don't spin off on 50 different directions and preach for four hours and put you all to sleep, right? Okay? Or the AC that keeps it comfortable in here so you can focus. And, and on 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 and goes. The Bible says that we are nothing but dust. We're a pile of dirt without God. Genesis 3.19, for dust you are and dust you will return. I mean, go outside on your way out. You grab a pile of dirt. Do you put any confidence in that dirt? No. Would you look at dirt being successful? No. Paul actually talks about this in 1 Corinthians 4. He says, he goes, what do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? And this doesn't diminish the good things that we accomplish in our lives. It just redirects ourselves. Because when we realize everything comes from God, it removes pride. And that's a big thing, especially out of the boomer generation. I was growing up and I used to minister to seniors and they would often focus how hard they work, how much of a harder worker they were. That it hired them. It made them more valuable than the people around them. Not all. But it was a lot. It's something I said over and over again. And they lack compassion for people and grace for people. It brings a humility into your life and a thankfulness into your life. Even with our younger generations, where we grew up with everything that we needed as Generation Xers, right? And those millennials grew up with everything. We had it good. That sometimes we can come, we're entitled to what we have. But no, when you realize that it's by God's grace, it brings a thankfulness. It brings a humility into your life, knowing that everything comes from him. And that's why at this church, you're never going to see us rename a building after somebody, right? Whenever you're not going to see plaques on chairs, people bought these chairs, you don't see plaques on them. Because everything comes from God. These are people just being obedient to the pressing of his Holy Spirit. And he alone must get the glory in all things. In all things. Not only does gratitude and humility come from understanding that something else kind of else happens that is, is fantastic, that brings you peace and joy in your life like nothing else. You realize that there's no greater plan that God could have for you than being in his will. That's the best plan. There's no plan that you can think up that you can dream up better than your life than God's will for you. No greater plan than being in God's will. None. Whether it's increase or decrease. See, what happens is when you work for your own glory, your own importance, when you work to increase yourself, you find out eventually that it's never enough. Solomon wrote an entire book about this called Ecclesiastes. We preach through it. It's never enough. You always want more. You always need more. But when you realize that there is a sovereign God above who gives everybody whatever he thinks they need at a particular time, when you realize that he's going to assign one man or woman to do this and another man or woman to do this for his glory, 
in his sovereign understanding, it gives you a peace. You become happy with whatever role that he gives you. Because you know that the other people you see around you, they only have what God has given them. You're not in competition with them. You're not in competition with their glory or their place or their money or their size. You're just being obedient to God. I mean, how much of our lives do we spend comparing ourselves to others? It starts in school. The things that we do to be like other people, the, 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 the uneasiness and anxiety it brings in our lives, the constant lack and depression that it brings. You read about that as one of the, the, the downfalls of social media and causing young teens to compare themselves to all these other people. But it happens in churches. You know, I read, I, get, I, I, I subscribe to all of these articles and blogs, and you see these, you get, I get hit constantly every week, church growth strategies become bigger, become better. When I actually said that. But when you are walking in God's will and you're worried about his increase and not yours, you're not worried about the church the size down the road. Who cares if they're getting bigger? I remember I was at one church back in Oregon, and our phrase was loving God, loving people. And, uh, and the, the church down the street, they had the sign that says, loving people, loving God. And I had this, this sweet lady come into me, and she was angry as could be. I didn't know what had happened, but something bad happened. She goes, that church stole our sign. <laughs> she said, I kid you not, he stole our sign. I said, let's burn that church down. No, I didn't say that. <laughs> I said to her, I said, you know that that's, that's from Scripture, right? Well, we had it first. <laughs> Maybe God wants the church down the street bigger. Maybe that's their role. Maybe he wants us the size that we have. Doesn't mean we don't want growth because more people means more people coming to Christ, but we want it for the right reasons. I was, I, um, about a month ago, Claire was at a, a preparing for the state championships in discus and, and javelin, and I watched her, and she's with her teammate, and she's showing her teammate tips on how to throw. And, and, uh, and my gut reaction, Lord, help me, is like, don't help the enemy, right? <laughs> Who cares if she's on your team? Don't help her. But this didn't register to Claire. She's just like, oh, I throw it like this. I hold it like these bunny ears, and I, and I press off of this. She wasn't worried about comparing herself to somebody else. She didn't compare, care if the, the girl did better or worse than she did. She was building relationship with her. Who knows? It might eventually, her inviting that girl to church and her family coming. You don't know. And I'm like, and I was thinking to myself as I was working on my sermon, what, what kind of, what could we accomplish for God's kingdom if we had that view? It doesn't mean that God doesn't call us to bigger things. Sometimes he calls us to bigger jobs. Sometimes he calls us to do solos on the stage. He calls us to preach and stuff like that. But it, it would be for the right reasons because we felt the Lord was pressing that on our heart and not because we were trying to increase ourselves. It's out obedience to Christ and to reveal him. I mean, my prayer for all of us is like, Lord, whatever you got for me, everything that I have, I did not earn, I don't deserve, I am dust, you have given me all of this. You could have crushed me when I sinned, you could have judged me right there, you sent your son, you gave me your Holy Spirit, everything I got, 
is just extraness. So Lord, whatever you want to do, do it. You need to take some stuff away for your kingdom? Great, do it. You need to give me more? Great, do it. Whatever you want, whether increase or decrease, I just want to point people to you. Can you imagine how our hearts and our attitudes would change? Church, church, you know, I always tell this, what's the greatest threat to the gospel? It ain't the devil. It's church disunity. It's church division. And it always comes from people's sinfulness, their selfishness, their being divisive, worrying about their own increase, not working together. That would be gone. If this, if this heart and this intention was around from the beginning, we would not have five billion denominations. Because we've been serving the Lord together. And so my prayer is today that, it, and we're all tempted, every single one of us, we are tempted to struggle with decrease. We are tempted to struggle when we're not praised like we feel like we should. We're, we're tempted when we, when to, to serve, not serve in roles that are menial or behind the scenes. Or we won't even sometimes consider roles unless they're up in front of people, whether in our lives or in their churches. We all struggle with this pride and this identity a little bit. And so my prayer is that wherever that is, the God, Lord would reveal to you and you would see it. And you say, God, help me be aware of this. And it helped me when this temptation comes that I'll just say, Lord, I'm ready to decrease if it brings your increase. And then we'll repeat it over and over and over as a prayer until it takes hold and root in our lives. And if we do this, we get to experience what John was talking about. He says it right here. He says, therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. It was the joy of presenting the bride to the groom. And I believe there is no greater joy and excitement than when we're in the process of trying to bring someone to Jesus. In fact, we were at, yesterday, we were at the men's breakfast. Good 19, 20 of us sitting there having a good time. And Frank goes, hey, we have any prayer requests? People throws out prayer requests left and right. But there were about six or seven guys who shared with the group people that they are praying for and trying to bring to Christ. And as a pastor, my heart was filled with joy and this enthusiasm they shared. And, and they didn't share it in this defeated way. They, they, had this, they had this hope in their voice and this excitement in their voice. These people hadn't even come to Christ yet. They didn't come in saying, I led 50 people to Jesus. They just said, hey, there's so-and-so. I'm trying to lead them to Jesus. I want them to find the hope in Christ. And there's this excitement there and this joy in there. And I mean, man, this is what it's all about. Showing people the one who is from above. To walk out in your life and say, Lord, who can, I, who can I bring to you like the best man would bring to the groom? But it starts here. I'm saying, Lord, I'm ready to decrease. I'm ready to increase. I'm ready to do whatever it takes to be in your will that I may bring people into your presence. Oh, I pray you feel that joy. And if you don't feel that joy, if you don't know what I mean when I'm talking about that, that you'd say, Lord, help me put an image in my face, in my mind. Help me to know who I need to start inviting to church, who I need to start praying for to come to know you. And you'll experience that joy that John is talking about, that those five or six guys are talking about. Remember, it's not your job to save them. It's just your job to bring them 
to Jesus. Amen, church.